electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the next leg of the rally, why it is now upon us, according to one of the most closely watched and followed market strategists. We'll tell you where he sees stocks heading in the months ahead. Get the committee's take, of course. And joining me for the hour today, Stephanie Lee, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, Rob Seachin, co-founder and the managing partner of New Edge Capital Group. It's good to have everybody with us today. Let me take you to the wall, show you where we are trading, because right now, keep your eye on the S&P 500, 42 24. We're not all that far away from a new high on the S&P. Dow's coming off its worst day since May as I turn to the committee to try and figure out exactly where we're going from here. And Josh Brown, I start today with this note from J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovich. He is a guy closely followed on Wall Street. He says the next leg higher is likely upon us right now. He says to stay overweight cyclical and inflation-linked assets. 4,400, his S&P target for the end of the year, basically says, look, all's good. After sideways, after sideways trading, now we're going to really start to move. What do you think? So I missed the part where he said, like, things weren't going to be good. So fortunately, I didn't do anything. And I guess I won't do anything this time now that he says we're all good for the breakout. Uh, Look, I I just follow price action. And price action has kept you in this market for almost 15 months now. And anyone that says otherwise doesn't understand price action. And the reason why price action is so important to follow, Judge, more important than commentary, opinions, feelings, um, rhetoric, is because it literally gives you a real-time sense of what buyers and sellers are actually doing with their money. That's their vote. That's, that's where they're betting. So anybody can say anything. So here's what I look at when I'm looking at the market right now and trying to understand what's happening with price. I have a 52-week high in the XLE. If I had told you we would see that six months ago, you would have laughed, given the condition those stocks were in. I have new all-time record highs for small cap value. The financials are hanging right near highs. The longer they stay up here at the upper end of the range, the more likely a breakout is to occur. Massive comeback in some of the speculative areas of the markets. The SPAK ETF that tracks SPACs, for example, is up about 20% off its lows. The meme stocks are memeing. Um, And then I look at REITs. And REITs are just having a major moment as investors uh, seek some protection from the idea of, of higher prices in the economy. Uh, and REITs just continue to find dollars. You can track that via the VNQ, which is Vanguard's REIT index, or the IYR, which is the Dow Jones version. Both ETFs are going uh, higher, have been for quite some time, outperforming everything. Last but not least, um, Facebook all-time high today. The breakout is legit. Alphabet looks amazing. I told you, I think Amazon is consolidating ready to make its next move higher. This is the condition the markets are in based on price. You can have any feelings you want about any economic data. I'm telling you what the buyers are doing. Okay, so Stephanie Link, it's cut and dry. 
right? As Josh said, Kalanovich says the positive outlook should last at least during the summer months, peak reopening, what he calls it, but potentially well into 2022. Does that make sense to you? I mean, we've had a sideways chop. There seems to be more trust in the Fed by the market. Vis-a-vis rates are not running away, backing up too far anymore, and they don't seem to be scaring anybody anymore. So that seems like to be a, a pretty good environment. It is a pretty good environment. We've been talking about this for quarters now. So the economy is definitely on the mend, right? And it's because of the stimulus. It's because of the reopenings. It's because of the vaccination rates. So far, the interesting thing to me is so far, the recovery has been led by manufacturing. We talk about PMIs, ISMs, durable goods. We talk about CapEx spending starting to turn. That's 12% of U.S. GDP. And so we've been very positive on manufacturing. But now you're starting to see services kick in. And we've gotten a whole host of data points from the government, but as well as from companies that services is actually doing better than expected. The ISM services hit a record last week. ADP and non-farm payrolls both led job growth from services. Companies like GM last week, Airbus, Southwest Today, Schlumberger last week with a, with a, again, uh, rising earnings uh, estimates. Um, so we're hearing it across the board. So if you add up manufacturing and you add up services, that's a nice tailwind for the economy and for it to stay strong. In fact, the World Bank actually came out today and expects 5.6% global growth. That's the best in 80 years. So it's not just the U.S. It's around the world. And so you absolutely want to have cyclicals and economically sensitive companies. But to Josh's point, there are some great fang names out there and secular growers, and you want to have exposure there. I am worried about inflation because I really don't think it's transitory. We've talked about this. I think it is on the commodity side. But when I hear the NFIB chief economist today saying that wages are going up because people can't find uh, people to, to work, that's worrisome. And that you add on to unit labor costs going higher and the ISM prices paid index at the second highest in, on record. So all of these things are worth watching. And that's the one trouble sp- uh, spot in my mind. OK, so Jim, Leventhal, uh, I'm, I'm just looking, I'm pulling up the year on the 10 year uh, is 153. So obviously the market isn't all that hmm. concerned about inflation running away from us or it will be reacting much differently than it is now. And it certainly doesn't seem to be all that worried about the Fed making a mistake or pulling the punch ball away too much. I- why don't you think that's true? Scott, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to step on, on Jim's toes. I want to hear from him, too. But I, I just want to correct this. Year to date, there's been $236 billion, with a B, dollars coming into U.S. investment-grade funds. That's money coming from foreigners around the world dying, dying, with all this cash sloshing around everywhere for anything that can be considered an investment grade and pays a positive yield. That is not an economic indicator that we can rely on. The 10-year Treasury is being sucked up by everybody all over the world, will continue to be for the balance of the year, a quarter of a trillion dollars just year-to-date in inflows, tamping down uh, the yield on those bonds in, in the open market. We should not so let's look go with at fundamentals. that and say people aren't concerned about inflation. Okay. They are. Okay, fair point. But, but, but Farmer Jim, yeah. if, if, if the market or people were that concerned with inflation, we wouldn't be a quarter percent or less away from a new high on the S&P 500, period, end of story. I mean, we'd have right. a much different market picture. 
Right. So, you know, Josh made an excellent factual point just now about flows. And, you know, maybe that's contradictory uh, uh, to what we, you know, what we think is going on with inflation. You know, it's a it's a muddy picture out there, but there are fundamental stories that you can look at right now. And what do I mean by that? Stephanie mentioned GM. I don't think we gave this enough attention and I'm not bringing it up because I love GM, which I do. But what GM said was they're getting more chips. I mean, let's stop and think about that for a second. We know that the chip shortage has been a major supply bottleneck. It's caused prices to go up, and they're saying they're starting to get more chips. Now, that's a, that's a data set of one, which makes it anecdotal. I'd like to see some more pre-announcements coming out over the next few weeks, and it's what I'm looking for. But, but, you know, add to that that, yes, lumber prices are something like three times higher than they were six months ago, but they're well off their highs. So you're starting to see supply in lumber catch up with demand. And I think that's the story that we should look to on this question of whether inflation is transitory or entrenched. Is supply starting to meet demand? Anecdotally, you can say that it is. I will admit, I need to see a heck of a lot more evidence to get comfortable with the assertion, but I'm glad that I'm starting to get these anecdotes that supply is picking up. That's going to control inflation. The the bottom line, though, Jim, this call by Kalanovic that sideways is over. Yeah. Okay. And we've been sideways for a while. And now the next leg is upon us. Don't get too confused trying to look at all this other stuff. It's here. It's here. Yeah. Is that right? So, you know, I kind of feel like he's I feel like he's talking directly to me because I've said I think it was last week, the end of the week. I said to you, I think we got two or three more weeks of sideways trading. I'm going to stay on that just because I don't think you're in the news flow of idiosyncratic company specific news yet. However, what I hear Kalanovich saying to me is, Jimmy, you're being way too cute. Don't even talk about how much longer sideways we're going, because by from here to the end of the year, you're going to be nicely higher. So, you know, if I look at my portfolio, and I'm pretty well invested right now, I'm not worried about whether Boeing's gone sideways for the last week or Apple's going to go sideways for another two weeks. I'm looking to the end of the year, and all of these names in my portfolio are going to be meaningfully higher than where they are today. Rob Seachin, we, we like to look at flows, kind of right where the money's going as evidence of where we think the market at large may head next. Bank of America says last week clients were net buyers of equities following two consecutive weeks of outflows. And certainly the trend of late has been, at least from retail, is pulling money and their clients pulling money maybe out of the market. Now they're starting to put it back in. So maybe that meshes with what Marco over at J.P. Morgan and his message are trying to get across today. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the amount of cash that sits behind that is certainly uh, very, very significant and kind of adds a, adds a cushion underneath this market. One and a half billion dollars, right? It's nothing to sneeze at. It's not, you know, one and a half billion dollars is what we're talking about. We're talking talking about 5.4 trillion of cash sitting on the sidelines. It's really enormous. And as it relates to kind of skating to where the the puck's going, which is what, what Josh is talking about, I think everybody's doing that. You've got this environment where nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to fight the Fed. So the one fear I have is we are all on the same side of the boat. Interest rates have become so distorted that they're a lagging indicator. So I, like Josh, am looking to equity markets to tell us to tell us what to do. On the one hand, if you have interest rates that stay at these levels because we continue to trust the Fed, you're going to see tech stocks do well. And you're also going to see international stocks do well because of the implications for the dollar. 
On the other hand, if you start to see, uh, you know, the economy with these rolling reopenings globally uh, do, do a little better, I think what you're going to see is energy companies do well. Probably that with uh, some some real estate or some of your best inflation hedges. Um, and then you have obviously the implications of rising rates if that, if that happens. I think where people get a little scared is interest rates have served as a foundation for valuing assets. But as a result of all these monetary policies globally, which has forced money into U.S. Treasury assets, asset prices are a little distorted. And what we really need is for the reopening of the economy and the earnings to overpower a lot of those risks. And I think you're going to see that as time goes on. I would not be surprised to see some volatility in the short run or some grind in the short run. But it's certainly something that we're going to want to take advantage of because we think there's a lot of opportunity. It's idiosyncratic, like Jim said, but we see opportunity. But if you knew, if you knew, Rob, based on Steve Leisman's reporting yesterday, which he shared with us and, and of course, all of our viewers, that the Fed was going to basically go at a snail's pace and be very deliberate. And it was going to lay out its message in such a clear and thoughtful way for investors that we weren't going to repeat the mistakes of the past and have any kind of taper tantrum. And by the way, they're not going to taper uh, today. They're not tapering tomorrow. And it's going to take a long time before they do. And when they do, it's going to be very incremental. And tapering isn't isn't raising rates. So that comforts the market to some respect, does it not? If I told you that was the environment, along with this enormous yes, growth that we're going to get into and an improving earnings picture, as Jim Labenthal was talking about, and an improving industrial picture, like Stephanie Link just said, isn't that a good environment for, for stocks? It could be. It depends on if the Fed gets behind the curve. We wrote a piece recently called, Is the Fed the New Slow Hand? Kind of uh, uh, mimicking an Eric Clapton, uh, an Eric, old Eric Clapton song, right? And the Fed has told you that they're going to move really, really slowly. The one fear is that they get a little behind the curve. These inflationary pressures are not transit, transitory. They're persistent. We see it in labor. And, uh, you know, rates move. Markets move rates, and I think that has implications for assets. But honestly, I really believe that we're going to be able to engineer this, that the reopening is the most powerful force. It overpowers interest rates, inflation, valuation, tax policy, and any other concerns we may have out there, at least for the intermediate term. So we are, we are using volatility to absolutely get invested. Yeah. Stephanie Link, the, the moves that you guys are making today are interesting. You know, there obviously are a lot of calls on, on cyclical stocks, and that's the place that you want to stay, whether it's Kalanovic or others who have come on and, and said that or, or written about it. You sold shares of deer, but it's not like you're selling deer and going into a, mo a more growth-oriented stock, right? It's bought, bought more Emerson. So it, the theme is the same. Yeah. The name has just changed. Yeah, it's true. Um, and I own Caterpillar, so I don't necessarily need to own Deer and Caterpillar. But a year ago when I was buying both of them, they were mo much lower. And I just kind of thought they were no-brainers given the valuations and the trough earnings and the earnings potential. So I'm up 100% in Deer. So I thought maybe take some, some profits there. Emerson has lagged, but they have new management. And I thought their quarter, uh, you're starting to see a turn in orders and in backlog. And that gives, gives me better visibility. It's got a hidden energy component to it. It's got HVAC. 
tech. It's got a strong technology offering. And I think they could do $5 a share in free cash flow by 2023. So I think that one is a better bargain here, just given the run that industrials have had. Seach, you sold MGM and you bought EOG. Again, you take advantage of a reopening play and a burst that it had, but now you're going oil. As Josh was talking about XLE, we're talking about oil prices at $70 a barrel for, for you know, WTI. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we run an opportunistic portfolio in partnership with Tom Lee's fund strat, specifically his strategist, Brian Rauscher. It's a top 10 portfolio. And so we made a lot of money in MGM. Wouldn't be surprised if the reopening trade continues to power MGM, but we see more upside in EOG. Um, It's a leader in responsible shale production. The management team's focused on creating shareholder value, leveraging technology to bring uh, an ESG focus to the EMP space, lots of premium assets, and with their new technology and lower cost of production, um, you know, we see some upside there. In addition, it, you know, it trades at 14 times next year's and has an enterprise value to EBITDA of uh, 6x. So a discount from the nine times where it used to trade when oil prices were at these levels. So we collectively, between New Edge and Fundstrat, think this is a great place to be. Is this, Josh, a perfect environment for investing in energy and buying, buying energy stocks right now? You get this reflation trade. You've got the reopen trade. You have a more adaptable uh, set of companies, perhaps, as it relates, as Rob said, to ESG. We saw what happened with Engine Number 1 and ExxonMobil, people who maybe thought they wouldn't touch fossil fuel stocks anymore, maybe are now having a second look because they think that the new frontier is actually underway? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I fully agree with that. I'd rather be in transmission of energy assets than I would uh, exploration. Uh, I think oil field services can certainly work um, as we normalize demand for for energy. But like the idea of this being a a secular growth industry ever again is very hard for me to picture. And I don't think it's so great that all these activists are winning seats on the boards of these companies, because what we know is that they're not economic actors. They're actually going to force these companies into less profitable behaviors on behalf of uh, the environment and the things that they look at as unless, being more important. Well, unless you think it's short-term, unless perhaps, sorry to interrupt you, it's, it's short-term pain for long-term gain, right? They, they may force that in the near term, but the reason they're doing it is so they can better outperform in the long-term in a changing world. Yeah, listen, when I started in the industry, there were like 20 publicly traded steel stocks, and every one of them had an activist involved. Carl Icahn was in a few of them. Alfred Kingsley was in some of them. They, were all, they all went to zero. None of them exist. Uh, there's one left, actually. I shouldn't say that. U.S. Steel, which is a, a fraction of a fraction of its former self. That's what I think the energy, uh, the, the oil and, and eventually gas industries will look like. The thing is, that's going to happen at a glacial pace. You're not going to wake up one day and have everybody driving a Tesla. So it's just not something that I, as a long-term investor... I'm interested in spending a lot of time on. I think if you have a thousand oil and gas names publicly traded today, that number is probably a hundred ten years from now. And maybe all of them are bigger and more profitable because the industry has consolidated. So I think you can make money there. And I don't think people should have portfolios with no energy. I am personally not sitting on conference calls, spending time trying to understand what these companies are doing, because I don't think it's that interesting 
or important for the future. Uh, and I'm a young man, so I'm investing for, for decades from now. What I would, okay. what I would, the last thing I would say on this, though, I do think higher energy prices will be like lumber and copper and appliances and used cars. Those are the elements of inflation that will prove to be transitory because we already know that we do an excellent job creating gluts in those things. If you ask me, will there be a dishwasher shortage in 2021? I'm laughing right in your grill. What I think sticks is the wage gains. You can't take money away from people once you've added it to their salary. So that part of inflation will stick. The good news is that's where it should stick. It's going to the bottom 20% of the income distribution who haven't had raises in 15 years, which is part of the reason why we end up with people storming the capital. They think the country doesn't work Scott, for them anymore. So I want that type of inflation. Yeah, well then, Steph, the, the good thing is, is the offset from the other inflation that's not going to stick, right? So yeah. should you yeah. be less worried yeah. than perhaps you just told our viewers that you are? about inflation not being no. as transitory as Jay Powell says it is? Wages are 70% of inflation input, right? So you do have to care about wages. Wages mean much more than commodities. And I would absolutely agree. I think that commodities are transitory. We have already seen it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more, right? But I think the wage numbers, and it's coming across a, a variety of different places, from government data, but also company data, right? So that's why I worry about that. Maybe we can navigate this well. Maybe I'll be totally wrong, but there's a lot of data points coming at us right now that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. Jim Labenthal, how come no new moves for you? What, you're still in this two-week two holding pattern? Yeah, but here's the thing. Things are working for me. Like I, when something's working, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and this is going to sound backslapping to myself, but I don't mean it that way. I've had plenty of time that my teeth get kicks, gets kicked in on the show. But, you know, you look at Marathon Petroleum right now. I don't want to mess with that. I, just leave that alone. Look at General Motors. I don't want to mess with that. Just leave it alone. Boeing. I mean, I can keep going down the list. I hear you, Scott. I'm always out there every day looking for a dollar's worth of value selling for 50 cents. But right now, I feel like, I feel like I've got it. And I just, if, if I'm on a streak, respect the streak and let it go. Hey, I'm not telling you uh, what to do with your, your money um, in, in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. I'm just curious as to why you didn't have any moves today when maybe you would have one or two here or there. But I know your overall view is to, you know, maybe the sideways thing lasts, lasts for a couple more weeks. I, I think, though, let me add to your question because it's a good question and I want to be helpful here. You know, my, my positioning right now is about 60% value, 35% growth at a reasonable price, which is Apple and Qualcomm and that, and then 5% in the hyper growth, right? That's Salesforce and Twilio. That's the area that I'd like to look to over the coming months, months, not days, not next week, over the coming months and see if some of these things that I've nibbled at, like Twilio and Salesforce, if I, if I get comfortable adding to them over the coming weeks, I like to go to where the puck is going. These hyper-growth stocks that have been really beaten up this year, I think that's where maybe for 2022 we should be positioned. Okay, well, I was going to ask Rob Sechenek, maybe I'm wondering if it's before 2022. Because as we said, as, as rates are not running away from us, whether that growth trade comes back in vogue and that the Kalanovic call is partly fueled by the cyclicals, which he says, and maybe it's a more 
weight towards that side of the ledger, but that these high growth stocks, which have corrected and self-corrected over the last few months, now get a second wind because they are more reasonably priced now than they were and against the backdrop of rates that aren't running away. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a bunch of things that kind of favor favor these companies, and I'm not talking about the the stay at home economy stocks. I'm talking about some of these high quality uh, blue chip tech stocks like a Microsoft, a, a Google. And when you look at uh, mutual fund allocations, their their exposure to tech is you know based on a Z score at an all time low. We haven't seen this low of an allocation, which means deviation from the mean since 2007. In addition, if interest rates, you know, people continue to trust the Fed, interest rates stay low. There's a huge uh, there's a huge tailwind to tech because we know know the headwind uh, that they faced as interest rates rose and you brought those earnings back at a higher discount rate. Um, the last thing that I would say is information technology as it relates to the S&P has the highest percentage of foreign uh, exposure as it relates to revenue. And so when you look at that and if you believe that other countries are behind us in reopening and you believe that kind of this dollar weakness persists and revenue from abroad is more impactful to earnings at home, I think tech has a nice bid here, and that's why last time I was on the show, we just did a slight pivot. We still have all the cyclical reopening stuff. I think we have a dearth in the middle, but I, I do think tech can find its footing. Okay. Absolutely. All right. We're going to bounce for a couple up next. The stocks that hedge funds are buying and selling in the market right now. We'll tell you the names, debate them, of course. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Leslie Picker, and here's our CNBC News update at this hour. A key Republican negotiator says she doesn't see an infrastructure deal happening today. Senator Capito says she does believe an agreement can be reached at some point. She says she has not heard from President Biden about a talk they are expected to have on the negotiations today. On the news tonight, the Senate's busy day, including the release of what may be the only bipartisan report on Capitol Hill insurrection on January 6th. Tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern. The MasterCard Foundation says it will spend $1.3 billion to get Africans vaccinated. The charity says it will buy Johnson & Johnson vaccine and administer shots to more than 50 million people. The first doses will be available as soon as August. In Pakistan, the death toll from yesterday's horrific train crash has risen to 65. Rescuers have pulled another 15 bodies from crumpled train cars. Officials say more than 100 passengers were injured. The cause of the accident is still not clear. And you know cicada swarms are getting serious when this happens. 
Police in Cincinnati say this car crashed into a telephone pole after a cicada flew in the window and struck the driver in the face. The driver escaped with only minor injuries, but the car was totaled. Scott, I feel like that could have happened to any of us. Yeah, no doubt. Wreaking havoc already. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Pickard. RBC today is out with a new note on which stocks hedge funds own in this market, which ones they prefer. Their number one, their most popular large cap stock, okay, it's Microsoft. Not that earth shattering, right? We can all, I think, agree uh, that if I asked all of you, you'd probably have that up on top of your list. What's interesting to me, Steph, is Chevron is a new addition to the list, a stock that you own. And I wonder if that goes to the kind of conversation that we were having a little bit earlier. I mean, I like energy. I'm overweight energy. It's only about 3% of my benchmark, though. So I'm only about 5, 5, 6% weighted overall. And I'm doing a barbell, right? I mean, I'm doing Chevron because I like the the dividend yield at 5%. It's safe. They've cut CapEx three times to make sure that that's maintained. But I like their assets. I like their M&A strategy. They have Permian assets as well, as I mentioned, uh, the asset uh, exposure. So I like that one. The other one I own is Schlumberger. It gets more of a, has much more beta to it. But it's a hidden technology gem, in my opinion. And it's still down from $80 a couple of years ago. And they just raised guidance last week. So I have kind of a one safe name in energy on, on the Chevron side. And then one that has a little bit of beta to it. Mm. Don't, don't remind Josh about Schlumberger. He, he doesn't like that stock. <laughs> and, and anymore. No. <laughs> we talked about that one. I hope it goes to zero. <laughs> uh, Josh, I was coming to you hey. anyway, which is why I did that segue. Don't be nice to Steph. Come on. JP Morgan yes. love Steph. is on. the number one name on their screen for the most popular overweights in S&P 500 funds. And oh, by the way, I should tell you all that Lori Calvacina from RBC is going to be on the closing bell later on. So you can hear more directly from her as to um, maybe the methodology behind this list. But Josh, what do you think? JPM, of all, of the, all the financials, that's number one. I'm just like I'm just like I look at I look at this company, I look at their last earnings report, I look at the chart, I look at the technicals, um, I look at uh, the, the the rate at which this stock gets accumulated on every dip, and I just say, how can anyone not like it? I really don't understand. Other than the fact that it's just doubled, and you know, obviously it's you're you're paying up for uh, the bank than you were for a long time. But other than that, isn't there a good reason why it has? If we think ultimately. This is going to go from a $20 trillion to a $40 trillion economy in our lifetime. Don't we think J.P. Morgan is going to play a very big role in that? Aren't they getting the benefit of all of the higher costs for everything in the form of revenue? Um, and, and so I just think, like, you, you should be in the financials. Um, I like more, than them, more of them than just J.P.M., but if you were just going to own one, it may not give you the best upside in the next three months. But I think if you're going to be a long-term shareholder, why wouldn't it be uh, in this name? Are so that's, that's how I feel. I felt that way for a long time. Are you still in Verizon? Because it's interesting to me as well. Verizon is removed from their lions of large cap, most popular large cap stocks. Yeah, it should be. Uh, Verizon, uh, Verizon trades like death warmed over. Honestly, I've come very close to just blowing out of it because I'm bored. But then I look at AT&T and I feel better. <laughs> Lastly, and I, I got to be quick, Jimmy, um, gorillas of growth, yep. the most popular overweights in Russell 1000 growth funds right now. Number one on their screens, Visa, which you're in. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm actually surprised Visa hasn't performed all that well. And I think the reason is with all the stimulus payments, people have paid down credit card debt. But that should not affect Visa because what Visa does is it takes a piece of every transaction. It's not the lender out there. So what Josh just said, a $20 billion economy going to a $40 billion economy, that's a lot of consumption. That's a lot well, of Visa transactions. I like Visa here. Yeah. By the way, Chevron gets on another list, too. Vultures of Value. It's the number one name on the screen there again. Uh, Calvacino on closing bell uh, later on this afternoon. Wendy's is now part of the meme stock mania. Shares are soaring today. Could this be one name that both retail investors and the so-called smart money actually agree on? We're following that money. We'll tell you what we're talking about next. Plus, June is Pride Month, and all month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own CNBC anchors and producers. Here is CNBC's Patrick Manning. I credit a lot of my success to the fact that I am LGBTQ. Once I fully came out and was living truly who I am, I felt a tremendous weight lifted off my shoulders. And I started to notice that that's when I really started to succeed in my career. It also led to a lot of very dear friendships and relationships within the LGBTQ journalism community. And that led me down many paths that I otherwise may not have discovered. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Take a look at your screen right now because there is Clover Health, and I know a 77% gain looks fabulous until you consider it was up more than 100% earlier today. The latest in meme mania, along with the other stocks that we've been talking about seemingly on a daily basis, like AMC and GameStop and some of the others, but Clover is having a very big day right now. Wendy's is also entering meme stock mania. It's the name that hedge funds have been in for a while now. Leslie Picker following that money. And, uh, you know, we know a big name investor who's been in Wendy's for quite some time. Yeah, a big name investor by the name of Nelson Peltz. He's chairman of the board right now. He's the largest shareholder. What's fascinating about Wendy's, Scott, is the fact that throughout the whole meme stock mania, we've been able to point to a few examples of, you know, the 
the sticking it to the man, the small retail investor taking on the big hedge funds and doing these short squeezes and all that. Well, Wendy's doesn't quite fit that narrative. In fact, it's actually kind of the opposite. To your point, we do have a hedge fund uh, chairman of the board here with Nelson Peltz. He's uh, been in this name since 2008 uh, when he orchestrated a merger back then that was, uh, you know, hotly contested, fought for a couple of years. He won and he's stuck with it, uh, owning about 12 percent at this point. Uh, in time. And you can see their large hedge fund ownership as well from some other names to Sigma, D.E. Shaw. A lot of quant traders have been in this names. Also, you've got Millennium, AQR, uh, Renaissance Technology, which could also be accentuating some of the moves that we're seeing uh, as well. Also, on the short interest side, Wendy's is actually not heavily shorted at all. It's only the 18th largest short in the domestic restaurant sector with $187 million worth of shares shorted, 3.99% short interest relative to shares outstanding, and a pretty cheap borrow fee at this point in time. Now, of course, shares uh, shorts have been covering recently, but nothing like we've seen uh, with some of these other meme stocks today. So perhaps, Scott, this is one example of the hedge funds, the Reddit traders, everybody actually on the same side helping push, push Wendy's up more than 22% yeah. today. They can go have a frosty together. Leslie, thank <laughs> you. Josh Brown, I turn to you for all things restaurants because of your shack investment. Well, Yes, I was going to say, when I saw that Wendy's was like the new uh, Wall Street Bets target, I said, wow, you're going to make Nelson Peltz richer? Okay, that's kind of cool, I guess. Um, But then I was thinking about Shaq because Shaq actually does have an obscenely high uh, percentage of shares shorting. It's pushing on 10% now, which I don't quite understand, but it's 42 million shares short. Um, It's a smaller market cap than Wendy's, arguably a lot more growth potential over the next, you know, five years and, and beyond uh, than Wendy has given the, the store footprint. So uh, I was just thinking, like, if you're going to do anything to take on shorts, c- can, I recommend, uh, can I recommend a different burger chain? But uh, <laughs> I guess there's some, efer- there's, a, there's some ephemeral quality to how they select their targets, and uh, I'll, I'll never really understand. That's, so. that's what it's come to. Now we're, we're advocating for, for meme madness Who knows? To, <laughs> to come to our stocks. <laughs> All right. Leslie, I am not. Yeah, I, to be I know, clear. To be clear, I am not. I know. I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, Leslie, thank you. Leslie, thank you. All right. Real estate stocks hitting record highs, soaring more than 20 percent this year. It's the best performing sector this quarter so far. The investment committee's top picks are coming up in just a bit on the halftime report. And CNBC's Evolve Global Summit is coming up on June 16th. Leaders and innovators from around the world will join us for provocative conversations and to share strategies and tactics necessary for adapting, innovative, and transforming in this new era of business. You can learn more, bless you, and register at cnbcevents.com slash evolve. Halftime's back right after this. Mentioned it at the top of the show, real estate is hitting new record highs, a sector posting record closes for the last nine of 10 sessions, which makes our gang happy because we have a lot of ownership here. Rob Seachin, American Tower is yours. Yeah, I really like American Tower. Great demand environment with carriers moving quickly to deploy 5G really at a record pace, and it provides a really meaningful really meaningful tailwind for AMT. 
The other thing that I would say just in terms of the sector in general, a lot of people view it as a little bit of a fixed income surrogate, specifically on the private REITs. We own some S REIT because you get the embedded inflation protection along with the distributed income, which comes at an attractive tax rate. Okay, Jimmy, Camden Property Trust. It's an apartment REIT. It's, it's been lovely. It's a relatively new addition, and it's just gone up the whole time I've owned it. The reason why is because they're in the Sun Belt. Uh, so this appeals to not only retirees, but as we know, a lot of companies are moving to Texas, to Arizona, and that's where this company is putting up new, elegant apartments for people to live. Uh, I, I think that trend's going to continue for the next couple of years, so I see this being a long-term hold. Okay, Josh, I'm looking at Simon Property Group today, which is yours, new 52-week high, 135 bucks and change. Yeah, this one's just grinding its way higher. It seems to finish every week higher than the last week, and with good reason. Tenants are, are paying. Um, this stock is still uh, 50% below its all-time high. It's still significantly below its 2019 high prior to the pandemic. And go look at them all these days. They're absolutely jammed. People are buying clothing again, makeup. They want to go out. They want to see and be seen. And uh, that plays right into the hands of Simon, not only as a landlord, but now as a part owner of some of the most iconic brands that they've been able to acquire themselves, like Brooks Brothers, Eddie Bauer, there's a really big list. So there are a lot of ways to win here with Simon. I think the suburbanization of America is not going to be reversed, and that makes Simon's properties uh, the new town square. Their A-malls in these cosmopolitan areas uh, are, are just going to be on fire. So I want to stay long here. The yield is nice while I wait. I think it going, it's going north. Okay. Ask Halftime's coming up next. You can send your questions in by video. We'll play them on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We'll do it next. time to answer some of your questions now. First up, Stephanie Link, I have a video question for you on a stock that's hitting a new all-time high today. Let's watch. My name is Casey. I'm from Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, I love the show. been watching it for a long time now. And my question is about Discover Finance, whether or not I should continue to buy, or is it a hold or sell? What do you think, Steph? I think it's more of a hold. It's up 38% year to date. They did have a very good quarter last quarter, held by reserve releases. Their credit quality is very strong. The one I prefer in this space is American Express because you do get the card exposure, but you also get the T&E recovery, travel and entertainment. And they guided 70% of 2019 levels for T&E in 2021, and they were already running at about 67%. So I think that the numbers are conservative. So I prefer American Express. All right. Good stuff. Thanks for the question. Uh, as well. All right, Josh Brown, to the video we go. Hi, my name is Drew from Georgia. My question is for Josh Brown. What's a better reopening play, Uber or Lyft? Thanks. All right, so you own Uber. Lyft has outperformed it more mm. recently, though. So what do we mm. think? Well, Lyft is like a pure play on the reopen. They got nothing else. So if, if people uh, are continuing to get back out there and travel, then Lyft is going to do great. And arguably, the stock price could outpace Uber's 
because Uber's got a bigger business with a lot more verticals that they're involved in. I actually think Lyft is going to get acquired at some point. Um, I'm not in it, but that's how I think that ends. I don't know if that happens from a higher price than today or a lower price than today, but I don't see it being able to survive as a standalone, especially as Waymo and some of the, other, the autonomous services start to roll out. Um, Uber, I think, has more of a platform feel to it, can be doing a lot more than they currently are. So I prefer that one. But in the reopening, I think both stocks should do well okay. uh, in, the, in the short to intermediate term. All right, let's watch the next one. Farmer Jim. Good afternoon. Frank from White Plains. Love the show. My question is regarding MP Materials, a SPAC uh, involved in rare earth metals. It's been moving up lately. Should I buy more? Sit tight or sell it? Thank you. Thank you for the question. It's, uh, it's up a lot today. Jimmy? Yeah. So, so, Frank, we have to call this what it is. It's a very speculative company, which means you can make money on it. But I, I got to say this strongly. You have to be prepared to lose all of your money. That's a possibility. This company's main asset is the Mountain Pass Mine in California. If that name rings a bell, does Molly Corp Corporation ring a bell? About seven years ago, that was a darling of the stock exchange because it owned the Mountain Pass Mine for rare earth elements. It's now bankrupt. It went bankrupt, I think, in 2016. So all I can say here is this is very speculative. It's a good time for the company, but I would put in a stop loss, maybe down like 20% because I don't want this thing going to zero if for whatever whatever reason, rare earths get not so rare. <laughs> All right. Good advice there. Thank you for that. All right, Rob Seachin, lastly to you uh, from Eden, California. Is now still a good time to take a position in Vanguard, short-term inflation-protected securities ETF, the VTIP, or have I missed that opportunity? What do you think? So, Ed, we've been long tips since March of 2020 when break-even rates dropped to 20 basis points, and that's really a measure of inflationary expectations. And when break-even rates are rising, tips are outperforming treasuries. We've been paring back that of late as break-evens have traded to 275 basis points. So with inflation expectations at their highest levels since 2008, the value of owning tips over treasuries has been completely squeezed out, in my opinion. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody, for all those questions. We'll take a quick break. It's already that time. Final trades are next. Got a question for the Halftime Investment Committee? If you want to send us a video, we could play it on air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. Okay, we'll do final trades in just a second. However, Stephanie Link, the number one stock in the Dow today is what? <laughs> IBM. All right. The best yeah. day, in fact, Happy since February that. of 2020. $150. Nice. It's a new 52-week high. Why is it, do yeah. why is it doing I mean, so look, well I lately? <laughs> Well, I think the story is getting out that the new CEO has very strong execution and his strategy to focus on cloud and AI is starting to work. They bought Red Hat, remember, um, and uh, that's going along very, very well. They did 10 other cloud deals since then. They're spinning their services. So as we say, they are shrinking to grow and be more efficient. And it still trades at about 14 times earnings with a 4.4% dividend yield. So I think the story is just starting to get out there. Okay. And execution is everything for IBM. You want to give me a quick final trade while you're at it? 
Uh, Vail Resorts is down three and a half percent. They beat earnings and EBIT, but only came in line on revenue. Past units up 50 percent. That's what okay. the stock trades up. That's what we want. And it was good. I just need a name now. Jim and then Josh and then Rob. Kinder Morgan. General Motors. McDonald's. All right. We're going back to the restaurants to end it. All right. That does it for us. Thank you so very much for watching the show today. The Exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.